Sometimes, the solution to nutritional deficiencies doesn't have to be complicated. Milk contains 15 essential nutrients that can play a role in the prevention of chronic diseases, from heart attack and hypertension to type 2 diabetes, even some types of cancer. It's a simple prescription for prevention rooted in evidence and proven over time. So maybe it's time to rethink milk. Simple, healthy. That's the science of milk. Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. I'm Blair Begum. And I'm Mojala Malay. This is the CMAJ Podcast. So, Jola, we're talking about the new alcohol guidelines published in CMAJ, formally titled Canadian Guideline for the Clinical Management of High-Risk Drinking and Alcohol Use Disorder. So I'm really excited to delve more into this article because previously CMAJ had released um, an article looking at the guidelines to the amount of alcohol, the quantity of alcohol use. And this mm-hmm. one really just focuses on you know, treatment for alcohol use disorder, how to recognize alcohol use disorder, which is very different uh, from what we previously were taught in medical school. So I'm really just interested in updating my knowledge and just getting to go a little bit deeper into that. Definitely. Let's get to it and speak with the author. Dr. Evan Wood is the lead author of the new guideline for the clinical management of high-risk drinking and alcohol use disorder. He's an addiction medicine physician and Canada Research Chair at UBC. He joins us from Vancouver. Evan, hello. Hello. Let's start by getting a sense of the scope of the problem. How prevalent is alcohol use disorder right now? Yeah, so surveys in Canada suggest that when you consider the entire grab bag of mild, moderate, and severe alcohol use disorder, it's estimated that almost one in five adult Canadians in their lifetime will meet the diagnostic criteria for having an alcohol use disorder. And how does that compare to, say, the United States or Britain Yeah, my co-chair, Dr. Jurgen Rem, does a lot of international work, and so he would be best positioned to compare to the international data. The U.S. doesn't do great, the U.K. doesn't do great, but if you look at, you know, a broader range of countries with similar sort of GDP to Canada, we don't do great. So, Mm. yeah, we're a country that has a culture that, you know, reflects a lot of heavy alcohol use and subsequent alcohol use disorder. And yeah, and compared to a lot of our peers internationally, the problem is greater in Canada. It's interesting because like when you travel to Europe, I just always got the sense that they drank more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems that way. Whenever you're out at a cafe, yeah, you know, everybody's having a glass of water. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's cultural norms around that too, you know, in terms of uh, keeping alcohol use under control and having a glass of wine with dinner as a fairly sort of standard part of some cultures, whereas the kind of heavy alcohol use where you might come home from work on a Friday and have 12 beers and watching the hockey game mm-hmm. is obviously a different pattern of use. Hmm. So let's talk about the definition. And and before we do, I'm curious, is the definition an international one or is it a Canadian one? And how do you break it down into those sort of buckets of mild, moderate, severe? 
Yeah, so so we use the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the American mm. Psychi- Psychiatric Association standard. So there's a threshold criteria of clinically significant impairment or distress. So just using a lot of alcohol does not equal an alcohol use disorder. And studies have really clearly shown that. You have to have this sort of threshold criteria of clinically significant impairment or distress secondary to your alcohol use. And then there's 11 criteria that essentially measure the sort of social and health impacts of alcohol use as well as some physiologic impacts. And depending on how many of those 11 criteria have two to three, it's mild, three to six, it's moderate, and six or above is, is severe. Can you give me an example of just one or two of those criteria, just so we get a yeah, flavor? Yeah, so the, the physiologic ones can be craving or tolerance to alcohol use. Those are really important, actually, to clarify, because sometimes I'll see someone say, well, yeah, I think I'm probably tolerant to alcohol, but the criteria really have to be a contribution to clinically significant impairment or distress. So craving, if you can't think of anything else, you're really distressed with these intrusive thoughts about drinking, that's craving, that's pathologic if you're tolerant to the effect that, you know, the classic example of pathologic tolerance would be chasing the dragon in heroin addiction when people are, you know, I used to be able to do a point of heroin in the morning and that would cover me all day. And now I can't even get out of bed without doing a point of tolerant, uh, a mm. point of heroin and having to use heroin to go after it again and again. That's pathologic tolerance. But there's health consequences and there's social consequences. So inability to function at work, home, or school, secondary to alcohol use is one of the criteria. So it's those types of things that then contribute to clinically significant impairment or distress. And again, depending on how many of those criteria people have, yeah, that that makes the diagnosis. So all those sort of quantify, you know, how many drinks do you have in a week or how many times do you binge, that has nothing to do with the actual disorder. Those 11 criteria It doesn't matter how much you drink, it matters how much it affects you. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So binge use isn't part of the criteria. The amount of use is is not part of the part of the criteria. And there's some really elegant studies that have shown that that using a lot of alcohol is a precondition for alcohol use disorder, but not sufficient to make the diagnosis. So how good are we as physicians or as a country of of identifying people who are either at risk or suffering from alcohol use disorder? This has been an area where there's been a huge amount of research to look into different screening tools because it's time consuming to have that conversation with people and to go through that sort of DSM-5 diagnostic exercise like I was describing. So there are screening tools that can try and parcel out who's high risk versus low risk. And then those that are higher risk, you can move on to a more fulsome diagnostic interview. So there are ways of doing it that the guideline quite nicely describes. And I would say on average... Canadian physicians probably don't do a very good job speaking to their patients about alcohol. Some certainly would, and there'd be people listening to this that, well, I I talk to every single one of my patients that comes in the door about how much alcohol they use. And I'm sure there's many physicians that do that and they should be applauded for that. But there's a lot of stigma around alcohol and people are in a hurry. The primary care Mm -hmm. system in Canada is groaning. And if someone comes in and they're finger is infected and they're looking for an antibiotic and they're worried about what's going on with their finger, 
you may not say, well, how many drinks do you have per day? Well, tell me about your drinking habits and these sort of things that might go below the radar. So the guideline really is encouraging that in the same way we talk to people about their cholesterol or other things like blood pressure and routinely screen for these types of things, alcohol should be in that mix too. And I would say that I'm actually uncomfortable with it. Like I always ask as part of my breast cancer screening, how much alcohol do you take in a week? And I'm always like, just roughly, because yeah. I'm a bit, because if they tell me, you know, it's... 12 or 20 beyond me saying you know guidelines say you should have less i i feel uncomfortable with their answer so i can imagine Mm -hmm. as a primary care practitioner how that must be yeah i think it opens up a whole can of worms and frankly because this issue has been neglected by the institutions that should be really directing where resources go in the healthcare system if you start pulling at the threads of that then where are you going to refer people? It could totally derail mm-hmm. you if somebody suddenly wants to have this conversation and uh, yeah, you're just the way your clinic is working. So there's we need to build the resources in the community, but we also need to train doctors to yeah have these conversations because whether it's the example you gave breast cancer as a risk or infections as a risk, you know, it's estimated that about 200 conditions, health conditions, are secondary to heavy alcohol use. So if we're only looking downriver and trying to help people that have fallen in and not going upstream and trying to deal with some of the underlying things, then obviously we miss a a big opportunity for health promotion and avoiding downstream consequences. I feel like the obstacles that perpetuate those downstream consequences are probably pretty well known. We probably don't need to rhyme all of those off. But what are some of the low-hanging fruit or the easy ways people can overcome some of those obstacles? Like what's a Uh, a quick tip that an ER doc or a family doc or a surgeon who's running a very busy clinic can use to start to improve our recognition of alcohol use disorder? I always just say to patients, you know, that I I ask all my patients about alcohol use. And and I've, I've seen physicians do that and just say, hey, this is this don't want you to make you feel uncomfortable. And um, this is just something I ask all my patients about. And I'm wondering how much alcohol you use. Is that something you're comfortable speaking about? And then you're really mm. sort of allowing someone to say, you know what, that's not why I'm here. I really need help with X, Y, or Z. And then you can park it for another time. But yeah, that's really what the guideline encourages is just trying to make it safe for people to talk about alcohol. And I think everyone can develop their own individual skills for how they do that. Okay, so you've had this conversation, you've gone through either a screening tool or just had a good old chat, and then gotten into your DSM criteria. And let's say we've now identified somebody with alcohol use disorder. Let's move into the treatments here. What does the guidelines recommend when it comes to treating people? Because you made a pretty compelling argument that it is grossly undertreated. I, was I reading that 5% of people who have it are treated for it? Yeah, it depends how you define treatment and it depends what jurisdiction you're looking at. Um, In the US, there was a nice paper recently published in the Annals of Internal Medicine that looked at people with actual Medicaid coverage to pay for their medications. And for those that had been hospitalized for an alcohol use disorder, about 99% did not receive treatment. In in, In different Canadian jurisdictions, there's a nice paper I think for Manitoba that showed about 1% of um, people who had a severe alcohol use disorder received a evidence-based pharmacotherapy. And in British Columbia, we have had a guideline for a number of years now, but I think the, the latest data, which is out of date now, I'm sure it's improved a little bit, but it showed about 5% of people who were showing up in registries with uh, a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder why received it, a pharmacotherapy. Why? Like why? If, we, if someone comes in with high <laughs> cholesterol... 
just give them a statin. I don't, but some other people give them a statin, <laughs> right? Like, even, but if I have a patient I'm discharged that had high blood pressure, you know, I'll be like, you know, you can start this and follow up with your family doctor. Why are people with alcohol use disorder not getting treatment? I, th- I think again, like there are structural factors. So just to maybe put it in perspective, I work at Vancouver Coastal Health's big withdrawal management facility, the publicly funded withdrawal management f- facility for the biggest health authority, all the way up to Bella on the coast, Richmond, East, Northwest Vancouver. And the, the program is in the city's old animal shelter. And I often use that as a metaphor for the lack of funding for the addiction system of care. We have people who will wait weeks to get into the program and um, we sort of get broken the bad news that we actually offer withdrawal management. We don't offer treatment. So we'll offer four or five days of withdrawal management. And for people who are marginally housed and desperate for treatment and recovery, they'll still get discharged to homeless shelters. So you're, we're talking about just a total lack of a, a system. You couldn't fix the system and kind of tinker with it and improve it. Then there are structural issues around lack of healthcare provider education. So when it comes to things like statins, medical students will do a cardiology block and they'll learn about lipids and Mm. lipid lowering agents and when they should be used. Whereas there's almost no addiction medicine education in medical school. And some of the things that are sadly big influences upon prescribing behavior in the healthcare system in Canada, including pharmaceutical industry influences, these medications are generic. So there's no real, you know, there's real no, no sort of influence there that's taking divisions of family practice to nice meals and educational talks and the things that historically have led to routine sort of reflexive approaches to prescribing. Well, let's go to the med school 101 here. What are the recommended pharmacotherapies for this? Yeah, so there's a number of on-label Health Canada approved medications and there's medications that have been investigated that are off-label. And I think the most important thing for clinicians to take home about the alcohol use disorder pharmacotherapies is if we were to use lipid lowering or let's say blood pressure control as an analogy, they don't really work like that insofar as the clinical trials of people with alcohol use disorder often measure a number of different sort of phenotypes like craving. And they also look at patient goals. So some patients will want to cut down on their drinking and they'll be, I just want it to be like it was before where I could have a couple glasses of wine and not continue on and get blackout drunk. Or I, you know, other patients will say, I know it's poison for me. I never, ever want to drink again. And so Mm -hmm. the two first line medications recommended in the guideline. The first is naltrexone. It's an opioid antagonist, and it really probably works best for people who have a craving phenotype and who want to cut down on their drinking. Whereas the other medication is a camprosate, where if you look at the sort of forest plots in the meta-analyses of a camprosate, it looks like it doesn't really help people reduce heavy drinking. But on the flip side, when you look at duration of abstinence, it can really help people stay in abstinence. So those are probably the big two, and those are the ones that have been examined in sort of these registry studies and showing how low the uptake has been. Disulfiram or antabuse is the one that I think we hear about in medical school. Mm-hmm. That one tends to create a sort of a, a toxic reaction when people drink alcohol That medication is very much a niche medication because people who want to drink will just stop taking the medication. And so in clinical trials, it's not particularly useful. But in circumstances, let's say with a sort of husband and wife scenario where the husband is, this is your last chance, we're not going to put up with any more drinking, you commit to taking your 
antabuse every morning and the wife will supervise that under this hypothetical scenario, then it can be effective in those circumstances. And then there's a couple of off-label medications, particularly gabapentin and topiramate are probably the big two that have been studied in enough clinical trials that there are meta-analyses that have looked at the impacts of those and they probably provide some benefit as well. We'll be back after a short break. Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. In your guideline, you say that treatments that patients are frequently prescribed tend to don't work. What are some of the examples of these that patients are often prescribed that doesn't actually work for the alcohol use disorder? Yeah, so so individuals with alcohol use disorder so commonly have consequences, whether it's the high blood pressure or insomnia would be a classic one, or if your social relationships are fracturing because of your alcohol use or even the physiologic effects of alcohol, you can have low mood or alcohol withdrawal symptoms classically are adrenergic. So people get anxious, you're in the grocery store lineup and you have a panic attack and you go and speak to your doctor about it. And the sort of much like statins are reflexively prescribed without hesitation, SSRI antidepressants in particular are almost ubiquitous among people with alcohol use disorder. People that come in with alcohol use disorder to Vancouver Detox, if they're not on an SSRI, it's always a bit of a head scratcher. And very commonly, they'll be on trazodone to help them sleep. And if they're still struggling, then again, a very low threshold to use an off-label antipsychotic, most commonly quetiapine, but sometimes uh, aripiprazole or others. And so you sometimes will see people on this sort of triple combination therapy of SSRI, trazodone, and an antipsychotic. And when the guideline committee came together, there was this very strong feeling that, hey, we, we need to, like, what about all these other things that people are being prescribed? And it's a hugely interesting story from an evidence-based medicine perspective because actually, you know, there's case series, very large case series initially showing people having worsening alcohol use disorder symptoms with SSRIs. There's preclinical data where you can reliably show that if you give an SSRI versus placebo to lab animals, they'll drink more. And lo and behold, there's double-blind placebo-controlled trials that have consistently shown that a proportion of patients will have dramatically increased alcohol use in the SSRI condition compared to placebo. Why is that? This is mind-blowing. What's <laughs> it's the, a, the mechanism? So I'm just... You know, some studies have measured craving and imply that SSRIs increase craving. I think that the the kind of the jury is out on that in terms of what the actual mechanism is. But we know that these are powerful drugs that are intended to, you can be in relatively poor social circumstances where you're, you have financial anxiety or bad relationships or both. And those things don't have to change, but your depression can improve with the use of these drugs. <laughs> so that's the promise. So we know that they can have very profound impacts. And one of those impacts is changing people's decision-making around pursuit of rewards. And even a serotonin transporter oh. gene has been implicated. It's actually been shown over and over again that there's a serotonin transporter gene that has been implicated. I think three randomized trials have shown that. And there's also actually a lot of concern around publication bias in this area. And the, the big hmm. NIH-sponsored trial that was 
intended to answer this question and looked at that serotonin transporter gene was never published. But if you contact the investigators, they did present it as a poster at a conference and it actually showed the highest rate of alcohol use was among individuals who at the start of the trial were hoping to be abstinent and also got prescribed an SSRI. So wow. it's a it's just a super, super interesting story in the yeah. sort of history of evidence-based medicine that somehow didn't see the light of day when it came to your average prescriber. I want to spend a minute on this because I'm, I mean, it's so counterintuitive to me because people always say like, oh, that, you know, they're self-medicating with alcohol. So you think, oh, they're sad. And so they're drinking alcohol. And so maybe if I prescribe them an antidepressant, they won't be sad anymore. They won't drink alcohol. Like, I, I don't know. That's just a pathway that was in my head. But I guess that's just like totally not supported by the evidence. Yeah, and I think historically, till I saw the evidence around trazodone, which showed a dramatically increased higher use of alcohol, both on the medication and six months after the medication was stopped. And SSRI studies have shown that as well, that in comparison to placebo, six months, because some of these studies have a, a treatment window and then they stop and then they follow people for six months. And they've shown that the elevation in drinking in what, what people call type B alcoholics or very high risk, heavy alcohol users can continue for six months after the medication has been stopped. So okay. that that sort of hope that, you know, if we target the insomnia because a person's saying they're drinking because they can't sleep or they've got such low mood, they might even be suicidal. But the meta-analyses, and I don't think I made this point clear enough, which I think is the most important point, suggest no benefit in mood symptoms with SSRIs if you have an alcohol use disorder. So you're not going to you're not you're not going to get the benefit that you're aiming for and then you might get the side effect of increased drinking in some patients not everybody of course. It feels as if our understanding of alcohol use disorder similar to what Blair was talking about has always been that it is a symptom of something. Drinking alcohol is a symptom of deeper other mental health issues. But this is mm. really making it clear that alcohol use disorder is literally like having high blood pressure. It in itself I'm basically reiterating your, your work, but I'm just trying to make it clear in my head that alcohol use disorder is a disease process on its own. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, there's there's genetic predisposition to alcohol use disorder. We estimate about 50% of the burden of disease with addictive disorders is genetic, but 50% is environmental. And so if you have a history of trauma or if you're in a horrible situation where the at the end of the day, the decision to be able to drink heavily is is better than staying sober. Don't get me wrong. And certainly there's lots of mental health issues that may predispose to alcohol use disorder like PTSD. Uh, and then there's all sorts of mental health consequences that come with heavy alcohol. The challenge is, and that I think the wrong turn we've taken as a sort of a healthcare system is this notion that people with alcohol use disorder can have fleeting visits with prescribers and get a bunch of polypharmacy, and that's that's going to be our approach to helping people. When again, I think of you know in cardiology environments, if people are being admitted to cardiology environments, and everyone was rounding on the patients, and people were on a bunch of medications that in meta analyses were shown to be of no benefit, you would see some sort of changes. And then if there was medications actually had been implicated in increasing heart attacks. I mean, there'd be smoke coming out of the top of prescribers' heads. Whereas <laughs> in the mental health and substance use world, it hasn't been subjected to that same type of scrutiny. And there's a huge hesitation to take people off of medications. You know, ask people like, right. who prescribed? Oh, I got a consult from a specialist four years ago and my GPs just continued it. And what about this antipsychotic? Oh, well, I ended up in the emergency department with a seizure. And so they, 
started it there. And it's just people are just super distressed and there just hasn't been that kind of evidence-based medicine approach to prescribing. So yeah, it's very complex and I don't want to simplify it. But to your question, alcohol use disorder prevalence is predicted in many respects by availability and cultural norms and use of alcohol in society has a lot to do with things like the price and taxation of alcohol and outlet mm -hmm. density and things like that. So it's a complex milieu of forces that lead to alcohol use disorder, but it is a, a standalone disorder that whether you have a concurrent disorder or not, we should be providing evidence-based treatment for it. Right. Evan, this is fascinating. In addition to family docs needing to be looking out for this triple therapy or people on SSRIs, trazodone, antipsychotics. Do you have another top takeaway that you'd like to leave people with? I think the top takeaways would be just the fact that this is a very common concern in Canada. We don't do well. And hopefully the Canada's guidance on alcohol and health will help address some of those bigger issues. Then issue A would be the underprescribing of evidence-based treatments that have really impressive number needed to treat in terms of their comparison to statins. The number needed to treat for naltrexone is about 12, whereas for preventing wow. heart attacks with, yeah, and same for a campersate for keeping people in abstinence. The number needed to treat is about 12, which is, is, is pretty great in comparison to a lot of medications we prescribe. And then there's the polypharmacy issue to be a lot more careful with what we prescribe and, and, and watching for those adverse effects that can happen. And then I think the third one is just an acknowledgement that you know we do need to build this system from the ground up because busy family physicians, when they see somebody who's actually like, yeah, I'm, I'm really having trouble with alcohol, I need help. Under normal circumstances for a prevalent medical condition, you'd be able to turn and say, okay, well, this is who I refer to. This is the outpatient resource. These are the things that support me as a primary care provider. And, you know, that system still needs to be built. So the entire committee acknowledges that, um, that, you know, we're at the ground floor of trying to build an effective system around health promotion around alcohol use. And then for people, what this guideline is really looking at, people who are struggling with alcohol use disorder, how they can get effective care and support. Well, it was a ton of work. It's a comprehensive guideline. Thank you so much for spending time to help explain it for us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for your interest. Dr. Evan Wood is the lead author of the Canadian Guideline for the Clinical Management of High-Risk Drinking and Alcohol Use Disorder, published in CMAJ. He is an addiction medicine physician and Canada Research Chair at UBC. All right, Jola, there's a lot of information to digest there. What is your key takeaway from that discussion? I think my top takeaway from this was that the, actually the agnostic view about like it doesn't really matter what you use to like to diagnose alcohol use disorder and also the fact that there's actually really seems to be compelling evidence in terms of treatment yeah i i was kind of glad to hear evan say you know ask whatever question you want as long as you have the conversation because it is so dramatically underdiagnosed and it is, I mean, it is such a hard conversation to start for every patient and, you know, every provider, you're just going to find your own groove to kind of open that door. And it sounds like with Evan's experience, it kind of is up to us just to at least make sure we open that door and get started. And also, I think the other thing that was really fascinating for me is just the fact that SSRIs, which is oh, like yeah. commonly prescribed for everybody, totally. um, but that it makes alcohol use disorder worse. And so for me, that was actually, you know, a bit of an eye opener in terms of like, okay, this is something to kind of remember. And yeah. Yeah, go ahead. 
And I'm still wrestling sort of with that concurrent disorders idea of of how you balance depression and alcohol use and how one might promote the other. Uh, but very, very interesting that SSRIs are now like advised against. Yeah. And I think for me, I've never, I always viewed alcohol use as a symptom of a larger problem and mm-hmm. not, not, and I view it actually like as I'm processing right now, I view it differently the way I view like, you know, an opiate addiction or any other forms of addiction that that's a primary concern. I always viewed alcohol as a symptom of another issue, you know, whether you're depressed or I I know there's association with alcohol use disorder and PTSD, but I always thought Mm -hmm. of it as like it's a symptom, not necessarily the main problem. So this was a standalone diagnosis. Yeah. So this was really fascinating to view it that way. And, you know, his example, like if your blood pressure is up, you give you medication for that. So us almost like destigmatizing alcohol use disorder with the way that he, like with the way that this was written was really important to me and about how my approach with my patients will be too. Yeah, I also found the treatment to be sort of, I don't know, I feel, like I don't know when the last time I prescribed naltrexone is, but I feel like in the ER, I meet plenty of people who I could at least have that conversation with. I mean, I do prescribe bupropion or Champax for people who are like, oh, I'm ready to quit smoking uh, as an ER doc. But I I don't have that conversation around naltrexone. And now I'm just kind of reflecting on why that might be. I 100%. And I think that, you know, for me, just the destigmatizing alcohol use disorder was really important. So yeah. In the ER, you know, we have all these rapid access addictions clinics that have started up in a lot of hospitals. I think it's kind of taken the pressure off of eMERGE docs. I think we're kind of like, oh, go talk to the RAM clinic about that. Or uh, we've sort of offloaded that from emergency medicine. But I wonder what the actual attendance rate of those self-referrals or, or physician referrals to an addictions clinic is. Maybe they're more comfortable talking about it with somebody who they already have a clinical relationship with. Or maybe you just seize that moment where they're there for their, I don't know, hangnail or influenza or whatever it was that brought them into the emergency department to say, do you want to talk about your drinking? It seems to have contributed to the reason you came to the ER today. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very elegant way of saying it. That's it for this week on the CMAJ podcast. Thank you so much for joining Jola and I. Big shout out to Neil, our producer at Podcraft Productions, and our editor at CMAJ, Catherine Varner. Don't forget to like or share our podcast wherever it is you download your audio or communicate with your colleagues and friends. We would love to get the message out there and have more people join us here on the CMAJ podcast. I'm Blair Bigham. And I'm Mojala Male. Until next time, be well. <laughs>